Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined, as always, by my faithful co-host, Mr. Mark Yuskin. Oh, always so great with the adjectives. Faithful. <laughs> it, uh, it's so good. All right. So, Michael, I'm going to set up the reveal this week. Mm, right? So me. last week, we talked about, you know, the nonsense in Canada. And so I thought hard all week, what, what, what socks should I wear? And, and I was inspired I don't know if you've seen that. You've probably seen the clip I did on CNBC a number of years ago. The price had fallen from ten thousand bucks, Bitcoin mm-hmm. price, ten thousand bucks to eight thousand. Kind of while I was waiting to go on the show, and I get on and and you know a couple minutes in, Melissa says, you know, "So what, what should investors do?" And I said, "Buy it." <laughs> I have and, seen and, that. Yeah. And she was like, "What?" Mm-hmm. Well, you'd yeah. always said no matter what the price. And so I went into my whole thing about why and. And at the end, one of the guys says, outcast, <clears throat> outcast. So in the, you know, lyrical words of Andre 3000, what's cooler than being cool? Ice cold. Ice cold. <laughs> Put your Bitcoin on ice. Mm. You need some, not all, you need some in cold storage. You need some off the grid, out of harm's way. It's getting crazy. I mean, when, when the president of the United States says very cryptically, but I believe very intentionally, the cost of defending democracy, you know, is high. And Americans understand that. And they're willing to give up some of their freedoms. No, no, I'm not. You, you can't seize my assets because, you know, we're in a war that we shouldn't even be in. But anyway, so crazy stuff. I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts on that actually. Uh, so let's let's just bookmark and remember to go back to this this idea of like sacrificing and uh, nationalism and rah 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 unity. Um, so we're going to get into uh, the situation that's going on in Ukraine. Uh, I want I want to caveat this by saying one the only appropriate take at least in my opinion when there's a war is war is always a humanitarian crisis first right. Um, my heart goes out to the people that are struggling on on both sides here frankly because mm-hmm. civilians are the ones that lose. Um, in these situations always. So I, I want to, you know, I was talking, we were talking about it before we, we got on here. I debated talk, wanting to talk about Ukraine at all. Uh, ultimately, I think it's the most important thing in the world that's happening this week. So we're going to cover it. Uh, but you and I are not geopolitical strategists. So we're not going to try to do the, the thing that every no, podcast look, and, host and does. And I, I, it's, it's possible, although, you know, I've tried to find out, but nobody asked great, great grandfather exactly what country he came from. Mm. But I've met um, plenty of people from Ukraine who said, oh, you're definitely Ukrainian. Really? Yushko. Yushko. And it's just got misspelled. I'm like, well, so it's possible. So so I, I, my heart really does go out, uh, even a little bit genetically, maybe. Mm. Um, and, and it is a tragedy. But, but it is a common tale. Right? It is. When governments get in trouble, particularly trouble economically, they wage war. The military-industrial complex has been doing this for about 150 years. I mean, I, I, I looked this up. This was amazing. Afghanistan was occupied three times by the UK in the 1800s, late 1800s to, to early 1900s. Then Russia twice and America. So it's basically just kind of where people go to drop bombs to increase GDP. 
because uh, it's a big open desert and there aren't that many people. But to your point, there are people who get in harm's way and, and bad things happen. So, um, you know, we've seen this before. Russia did this in Syria. We did it in Iraq. Um, it is a very common tale, unfortunately. Absolutely. Um, so humanitarian crisis first. And I think the lens that it makes sense for us to talk about what we'll cover today is just how markets and assets behave um, in these yeah. sorts of crises. Not because that's the most important thing, but because, like I said, you and I are it's geopolitical where, it's strategists. Where is, it's right? where the expertise I, is. Yeah. I, I didn't serve. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have no insight. I don't have any friends in high places in, in the Pentagon. Uh, and I don't spend my time thinking about geopolitics. I, I certainly... I'm aware of them, and they are mm-hmm. important to a macro strategist, which is my former life. But yeah, no, no real expertise. Uh, you know, it's it's funny though, and it's funny that we have to make this dis- disclaimer. Mm. It used to be that people could discuss and debate any topic: mm. epidemiology, geopolitics, regular politics, health, anything. And nobody labeled you as, oh, you're trying to be an expert. Oh, are you an epi- do you have a degree in epidemiology? You mm. can't talk about viruses. What do you mean I can't talk? I can talk about anything. Mm. And we can have a dialogue and debate in search of truth. And then we can consult people who maybe have more expertise. But the fact that we have to make a disclaimer to even have a conversation is kind of weird. Mm. But um, we do make that, that disclaimer. Yeah. So um, with that, let's transition right into... Uh, I guess, you know, what we're looking at here is a chart of just uh, S&P 500 futures on the left, which staged, uh, you know, after a pretty um, precipitous drop, they rallied really hard. Uh, In terms of the NASDAQ, uh, this was the largest intraday move um, in terms of percentage in the NASDAQ 100 uh, since 2008, Uh, you know, so a gigantic, uh, a gigantic move. I guess, Mark, just from, you know, zooming out for a second here, I mean, what are some of the principles that you've taken away from kind of acting as a market participant in extremely volatile environments like this? Yeah, so a couple things. Um, One, large moves in a particular direction only occur in the opposite regime, Mm. right? So large up moves only occur in bear markets and large down moves only occur in bull markets. And they occur, so a move like yesterday, a, a bear market is defined as a market that goes down more days than it goes up, but goes up sharply on good news or perceived good news. And a bull market is defined as one that goes up most days, but goes down precipitously on bad news or perceived bad news. So there were a couple perceived good news moments yesterday when it looked like it wasn't going to escalate into World War III, uh, which I actually don't think it, it will. But uh, these types of, of moves are false flags. Uh, however, uh, to your point, if you go back in history, <laughs> one thing I do have is old which is good in these situations. It means I've seen multiple examples, unfortunately, of these types of invasions. And war, which is sad to say, is good for equity markets. Okay, why? 
Well, because war creates, not there you go, um, because war creates economic activity. In fact, sometimes lots of economic activity uh, in terms of, you know, building more bombs and more missiles and more tanks and more. Now, it, that's not universally true everywhere. Clearly, if you're the country that's being demolished, then, then it's bad for you. But, but generally speaking, particularly U.S. stocks, particularly on U.S. invasions, that's been really, really good uh, for, for U.S. equities. Uh, and you've got the chart here, you know, Gulf War, Vietnam War. Uh, I, mean, I, I remember the, the day of the, the first Iraq War um, back in the 90s, and you know, the markets were struggling. We were, were coming out of a deep recession, and, and suddenly there's this little bolt from the blue. Oh, we're, we're going into Iraq. And if you think about it, when a, when a country is mired in recession and uh, things aren't going the way they want, what's one way out? Well, you can just, I said, go drop bombs in a desert somewhere. And so you look at Iraq 1, you look at Iraq 2, you look at Syria, the Russian Syria. You know, go back and look at Russia's GDP. It was collapsing right before they started dropping bombs in Syria. And uh, sure enough, price of oil rallies economy rallies and you know here's another example look look what happened to the price of oil not only momentarily hitting 100 but uh, you know, you're financing your own activity uh, with that that boost in economic activity hmm. yeah it was interesting for me to see this too uh, I, I, I I didn't realize this uh, again less experience in markets than you but uh, I mean so for viewers who are um, just listening on the audio here we're looking at uh, U.S. equities uh, over, over different wartime periods. So we're looking at how equity markets performed during the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, Afghanistan, Iraq, Crimean crisis. And I guess, you know, it, it is funny when you hear like it, it does make sense, right? It does boost economic activity, right? Wars. I mean, that's kind of what took us out of the Great Depression, World War II. But yep. it's just it's just funny to see reflected on these charts. And I guess maybe well, Michael, one... that, that again, I, and that's why I love hanging with you because you are a student of history. That's that's the really, you know, World War One and World War Two are really significant examples of that. And uh, there's all kinds of other things too that were in, involved, obviously. But so much of the hey, we really need to um, spend. And if you look at at you know deficits up until recently, right, the COVID deficit. Trump's everything. Uh, I don't mean Trump, Trump, but I hate mm -hmm. the fact that we can't say the word Trump anymore without thinking about the guy. Um, but uh, I guess the COVID deficit supersedes everything else that came before it. But in, if you look at history, we only had periods of big deficits in wartime. And that was because we spend all this money uh, on military industrial complex. And there are certain industries and certain sectors, back to, to market analysis, there are certain sectors um, that really do quite well. Uh, and, and really all you have to do there is, is follow the ownership. Uh, in, in Iraq 1, uh, remember there's the whole scare about uh, anthrax? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, everybody was all freaked out about this, and there was this pill that you were supposed to take if you're exposed to anthrax uh, called Cipro. Well, it turns out, you know who the chairman of Cipro 
the company that made Cipro was, mm. turned out to be Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary <laughs> of Defense. Like, huh? That, that's that's actually, really that's interesting. All these these treatments and all these things, and the one threat that turned out to not be a threat, and it you know came from some you know random crazy person, not some terrorist organization, uh, happened to be made by you know that. And then Iraq too, the Green Zone. Remember the Green Zone that got established and it was going to be rebuilt. Halliburton got all the contracts, hmm. which just happened. Just, I don't know how that could be, you know, but Dick Cheney and, and W, I, you know, just large shareholders. Now, it was in a blind trust while they were in office. So clear, you know, they, they had no knowledge. Come on. Mm. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. So follow who owns what. Yeah. Um, I want to I, I wanna get your opinion uh, on this chart here. I thought this was pretty interesting. So this is the distribution of subsequent 30-day returns of the S&P by VIX regime, right? So VIX regime being a measure of volatility. So what we're looking at here is basically distribution of when the VIX is below 12, when it's between 12 and 30, and when it's above 30. And so what you can kind of see is that when the VIX is above 30, in general, returns tend to be good or better, um, but there's a lot, there's like, there's more tail risk essentially, because you can see, you know, it kind of extends that negative 20%, um, uh, negative 20% zone all the way on the left there. So yep. I guess, I guess I'd, I'd be curious to see like what, what, what jumps out at you when you look at this chart and just in general, when the VIX is trading above 30, do you have any, do you have any kind of heuristics or rules of thumb for, for how to trade markets? So VIX is a really interesting thing. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a index of, of volatility of of the overall market, and part of the challenge is it's changed over time, in that it used to not be widely followed. It not used to not have derivatives tied to it. There used to not be ETFs where you can buy levered bets on it, and so for lots of years it was a pretty good indication, a lagging indication of what you should do, right? If you think about it, when it was low and there wasn't a lot of volatility, you should probably get a little nervous. And when it was high and there was a lot of volatility or a crisis, then you should probably start to get excited. You know, when there's blood running in the streets, you should run out and start to buy stuff. And the point on the tails is what we have seen over time, and you saw it in a couple of the previous charts, is these cascading downs, right? It's where you... You have the first shock, and then you have a relief rally, and then you have another shock. So the VIX kind of goes up, then starts to come down, and then goes to the to, to the actual peak. Mm. But the other thing you'll notice about VIX charts is they have no plateaus, right? There's never a period where the VIX goes mm. from 10 to 30 and then stays 30. It goes from 10 to 25 to 30, and then it's immediately within days, weeks, back down to 15 or 18 or whatever. Mm. And so that's why the there is an inverse correlation between the level and future returns, which does make some sense. But it's it has been corrupted, I'll say corrupted over the, and I don't mean that in, a, in as negative a sense as it sounds, but corrupted in the sense of, because there's so many derivatives now tied to it, uh, like there's a product I talk about on, on our webinars that we do uh, around this called VXX, which is a levered form. It's an ETF that, that anyone can buy instead of having to be a derivatives expert and have 
uh, ISDAs and all that. So you can buy it. And the problem is, if because it's leveraged, uh, if you hold it over long periods of time, it destroys all your value, right? Mm. It's one of those charts that just, you know, it's like oil and others, these, these levered ETFs that just basically they're a parabola down and they destroy it. It's because of the daily rebalancing that goes on. But if you only buy it when the VIX is really, really low and compact, right? So the VIX has come way down. It gets compacted by everybody selling volatility. Then when markets crash, like, like recently, so the year to date, the markets are down, whatever they're down, 10, 12%. Mm-hmm. This thing's up 30%. But then what you have to do is you have to sell it. So at the time when you're like, oh, I'm right, and it's going to keep going. Like, no, 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 no. It's, it's going to go right back down to zero. So that's part of the challenge of this is there's so many participants now. And it's, it's kind of what happened to Bitcoin since November is when you introduce a massive futures market into a spot thing, VIX's spot, and you got all these other futures contracts. Or VIX is a futures contract, but it's, it's an index of futures. Uh, but you have all these other futures contracts that allow people to make levered speculative bets that, that pervert the directionality over a short period of time. Hmm. So, you know, one of the other things to just about different to, to, to move back a little bit towards um, towards Russian generals, like I'd love to get your snapshot for just where we're at in terms. So, so we've been talking a little bit. We, we talked about investor sentiment um, on last week's roundup, too. So just as a reminder, this is the American Association of Institutional Investors. This is the bull bear spread, right? And we're we're like approaching lows at least for the last 10 years or so, right? So it seems like things are still very bearish. You know, if you actually look at how uh, things performed in Russia, uh, I, thought, I mean, that's a cool chart, but it's obviously a little, little sad, too, uh, which is this. I think Russia's... Uh, one-day route in their stock market uh, yesterday, which was negative 38%, was the third largest in stock market history, uh, only outdone by Kazakhstan in July of uh, 2002 and Argentina in January of 1990. And I'm assuming that's when they defaulted one of their many defaults uh, on their bonds, right? And if you look at, you know, bond-wise, the Russian 10-year uh, almost uh, hit 16%, and the five-year uh, CDS spread, uh, you know, completely blew out as well. So it seems like there's kind of carnage over there. It seems like uh, investors are still very bearish at the current moment. What's your kind of thought on just, you know, snapshot on where, where we're at in terms of markets? So again, this is a perfect example of, of uh, I don't want to call it, the weaponization of markets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the big Argentinian, uh, Argentina move uh, was, was currency, right? Mm. It was the, the peso getting absolutely collapsed um you know kazakhstan not really big enough to matter russia again most of that move was was ruble and and ruble devaluation because uh when you have a financial system a global financial system that is dollarized right so in 1974 we cut a deal with saudi and we said all right we're going to go off the gold standard and we're going to go on the oil standard and so here's the deal saudi we will protect you in exchange for pricing all oil transactions in the world in dollars. And so the dollar has had this hegemonic run since the 70s that allowed us to weaponize it, right? To sanction. Now, I would say, somebody, and I stole this from somebody, I wish I could remember who who tweeted it, but if if we said we're going to starve women and children, 
rather than sanction, people would be less in favor of sanctions, right? <laughs> Economic sanctions on place like Iran or, or Russia. Um, they'd probably be less in favor of that if we said we're really going to take food out of the mouths of, of families. But that's, that's what the weaponization of, of the dollar uh, has, has allowed that or that, that military industrial complex that created the, the power structure with, you know, three superpowers today, although the U.S. doesn't want to acknowledge Russia or China as a superpower, but, but call it three superpowers and, and one kind of apex predator. Um, you know, 8% of global trade is with the United States. 60% of global trade is denominated in dollars. So that's the petrodollar standard. But here's, here's the interesting thing is, you know, Russia did this huge deal with China a couple months ago where they're going to provide all this gas, right? And shockingly, there's a conflict a couple months later. Not shocking. Uh, think about Iraq, um, Iraq II, uh, Saddam Hussein. Why did we go after Iraq? had nothing to do with weapons of mass destruction. That was fabricated. It had to do with Saddam Hussein said he was going to price oil transactions in euros. Can't have that happen. So he has to be taken out. Uh, Libya. What, what do we care about Libya? Most people can even find Libya on a map. Okay. Qaddafi said, I'm going to price oil transaction in gold. Okay. Can't, can't have that. So now you got Russia and China saying, you know, we want to price oil transactions or gas transactions in in uh, non-dollars. Hmm. Now suddenly we got guns pointed at, at both of them. So, but but I but, but my by to answer your question, Michael, um, Russian equities got lambasted because uh, the president of the United States was able to say uh, every asset uh, associated with Russian banks in the United States. We are freezing. We are seizing. That's kind of what Canada said about the, the truckers convoy, right? If you donated to that convoy, we're seizing your assets. No due process. And as I said last week, if, if that doesn't terrify you, right, you're just not paying attention. I mean, it's absolutely terrifying that a government can capriciously, right, with no due process or, or you know, just their belief that, hey, you're, you're, you're doing something bad. I don't like it. Uh, can seize your assets. So when I look at these charts, I actually, and I actually, uh, <laughs> I actually did this a little bit, not, not as much as I should have. Um, I want to buy, right? Because you'll notice that there are no periods where it goes up and then stays there. Yeah, right. Right? So interest rates in Russia will fall. Uh, the ruble will recover, uh, especially with oil prices stay, you know, in the 90s. And stocks in Russia, like my favorite, Sparebank. Right? Sparebank, 68% market share, wildly profitable. I think it went down 62% yesterday. Sparebank is not going out of business. It's just not. And if you have a long time horizon, uh, you should buy it. The, only, the, the other fun time is in um, 1998, no, 1997, 1997, August 1997. Uh, you had the whole Asia crisis and then you had the, the Russian collapse because of the Asia financial crisis. And uh, Russian stocks went down 85%, no, I'm sorry, 
Russian stocks went down 95%. And I was in the airport uh, in New York at LaGuardia at a American Airlines lounge, which was very, not very nice back then, uh, with George Rohr. George Rohr is one of the legendary uh, Russian investors. And he pulled out a piece of graph paper, literally, you know, blue lined graph paper, where he was charting by hand the RTS, uh, Russian stock. And he said, remember this day. This is the day to buy. And uh, clearly it went back to new highs, which means you made 20 times your money. But I, I did a little bit better. And, and again, I didn't do very much. But for my kids, I bought the, there was one listed Russian company that you could buy as a U.S. investor without opening special brokerage accounts. It's called AO Tatneft. And essentially, it's a long story, but I apologize. So uh, a barrel of oil at the time, pick an, I don't remember what the, the price was, like uh, $15. Mm. Um, and a barrel of oil at AO Tatneft stock was four cents. Like, yep, that that's wrong. So I bought both my kids a thousand shares at, at like, you know, a dollar and it went up 40 times. So good for them. That's not bad. That's not bad to be a Yusko child. Um, I've got, I've got one more question for you here. Uh, when you, this is kind of an interesting chart. Um, uh, Bitcoin and gold have been inversely correlated, uh, basically for the last couple of weeks. And I mean, my, my, my immediate take here, right. Is that, um, the reason I think this is happening is because gold is acting like a safe haven uh, right now, and Bitcoin is correlated. The market is treating Bitcoin as if it's a risky tech stock. Uh, that that's my it's, personal. It's not take. even. It's. It, I mean, you're you're right, it, but it, it's it's not that the market's treating it. It's not that the it's not that anyone's thinking. Oh, I wonder what this is. Right. It's just no one, literally no one, buys gold on margin. Mm. Not anyone. I mean, zero people. I mean, maybe JP Morgan, but other than JP Morgan, no one buys gold on margin. There are no levered gold ETFs. Actually, no, there might, there, there, no, no, there are levered gold minor ETFs, but there are no levered, there's no GLD 3X, I don't, I don't think. So no one buys gold on margin. A whole bunch of idiotic people, I shouldn't say idiotic, that's too strong. A whole bunch of less intelligent people buy Bitcoin on massive amounts of leverage. Mm -hmm. And when you get a shock, right? An unexpected shock of any form, right? Whether it's war, whether it's, you know, a meteor. I mean, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter what the shock is. Something that's unexpected, um, there will be margin calls and there will be liquidations. I mean, there was $450 million of liquidations of Bitcoin like in an hour. And that's that's what happened. So I I get the fact that that people keep putting up short-term charts to try to disprove Bitcoin is a safe haven um, or prove gold and but, but gold is a safe haven. It has always been a safe haven and it's because it's very widely owned, right? Lots of people own gold. Mm -hmm. It's not levered. And it's boring, but I'll tell you, it must just gall Peter Schiff that at the end of the day yesterday, at the end of the day, right? You know, the, the initiation of, or I guess it was Wednesday, the end of the day, oh, yeah, it was yesterday, yesterday, the end of the day, 
uh, Bitcoin was actually up and uh, gold was actually down a little bit. So uh... this episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talked to a lot of fast growing crypto native funds, crypto banks, exchanges and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. It, it, it is funny. It's, uh, I think this is... Dan Moorhead came on the show like a month ago or something. And he did this. He was like, here's a hypothetical thought experiment for, for gold folks out there. Imagine it's 1980. Uh, we've printed tr- you know, trillions of dollars, given it away to people. Interest rate, you know, CPI inflation is at 7.5%. Uh, interest rates are at whatever they're at, like 2%. And gold hasn't moved. It's like you would you would have bet anything, bet anything. You would have you would have levered yourself. You would have you would sold have your house. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you would, you would, actually would have bought gold on leverage. Right? You thought that was going to happen. Yeah. It's just funny. I mean, um, I you know, I'm not I'm not an expert on gold, but it must be. I could imagine it being very frustrating. I have. No, no, I have there's, a, there's there's two things. No, but there's two things happening. One, J.P. Morgan is spoofing the price of gold. Right? They are controlling the price of gold, manipulating the price of gold. They got fined $920 million for doing it, but they made $20 billion and like, eh, cost of doing business. So that is what's keeping gold prices artificially plugged. The other problem is free float, right? The free float of Bitcoin is too small. It's just too small. Whales own too much and they need to sell some, but they don't want to. You know, the hodlers want to hodl. And until we fix that, right, until more people, and it doesn't mean that the whales have to sell, but, but the, either the price has to go up so that some people sell so more people can own. But until more people own and there's free float, it, 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 it's, it's like Tesla. Tesla is very volatile because it's so closely held. Yeah. There's so little free float. And it's why in an up move, it's awesome. Right, it's just self-perpetuating, and but in a down move, once that down move starts, it can be really ugly, and you know we're we're still in crypto winter, and what I mean by that is you know, that's the period where fewer people are entering, right? mm-hmm. we're not seeing as much interest, uh, you don't see as many searches, you don't see as many new accounts, you don't see um, you just don't see as much as much interest. Um, and the price is, is in this, you know, snake in a tunnel and 
The problem is the tunnel's got a downward cant to it. And uh, you know, last week I had my Bitcoin roller coaster socks on. And I, I, you know, problem with the roller coaster, it's up and down and up and down and up and down. At the end of the trip, you're in the same damn place. Yeah. And that is no fun unless you get to go again. And then it's fun. Um, and spring is coming. I mean, spring is coming. It's just, it's just a ways out. Yeah. Let me ask you, let me ask you a question here to maybe get into the last thing that I want to cover with you. Um, sanctions that have been levied at Russia, right? So Boris Johnson comes out, says, um, we should, we should deplatform Russia from Swift. Do you think, what is your thought? On, let's ignore the political brinksmanship element. Do you think Russia should be ejected from the Swift system? Um, no, mm -hmm. uh, not the first time this has been suggested. And look, did America get ejected from the SWIFT system when we invaded Afghanistan? Nope. How about when we invaded Iraq? Twice. Nope. So I, I, I get it that you know, the allies around the axis and, and uh, you want to use every possible measure to, to gain your own, curry your own political favor. You know, what does Boris Johnson really, you know, he's like, you know, stand with, with Ukraine. Since when? Right? Since Wednesday, for sure. But I mean, I don't think I've ever seen Boris Johnson ever. Mm. Now, I don't watch Boris Johnson a lot, but I don't think I've ever seen him talk about Ukraine um, until suddenly it's politically expedient to talk about Ukraine and put up a blue and yellow flag around your, your head. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's all political gamesmanship. You know, Russia, I believe, is very close to having a central bank digital currency uh, similar to the renminbi. And I think I actually do think they'll be second behind China in releasing a central bank digital currency. I think they know they've always been perilously close to being ejected from that system. Right. And it's why they've made the moves like they have um, to secure, uh, you know, relationships with other countries in rubles or in renminbi or in African currencies or, or whatever, whatever it is. But here's here's the thing. Ain't gonna happen. Because anyone been to Eastern Europe or even Western Europe this time of year? It's cold. And you need this thing called natural gas. And where does Europe get their natural gas? Gazprom. Right? Gazprom, it's at least 30. It, it might even be higher. 30% of, of European gas comes from, from Gazprom. That, I mean, look, I, again, I've said I was going to refrain on commenting on geopolitical things, but Jesus, it seems like an unbelievable own goal, especially on like Germany's part. It's just, how could you let yourself be that dependent on, I mean, yeah, energy is a, is a, is a national infrastructure argument. I, I, I don't understand. It's the national security, sorry, argument. I, yeah. I don't understand how they let that happen. But, uh, well, but Michael, that's, that's why this whole thing is about pipelines. Mm-hmm. Ukraine is all about pipelines. Yeah. Right? Why does America care about Ukraine? Pipelines. There are pipelines that run through Ukraine 
They also run through Turkey, which is why Turkey matters. They also run off the coast of Greece, which is why uh, Greece sometimes matters. All of this, all of the turmoil over the past 30 plus years, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Turkey, whether it's uh, Ukraine, it's all about energy and pipelines, all of it. And the idea that that it's something different. Uh, everyone tries to create some new story every time. Syria is the other one. Uh, it's it's always about these pipelines. And what I think is funny, if you watch Bond movies, mm. the subplot of the Bond movies is real. Like remember the one of 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 the 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 media guy who was creating the fake stories about the airplane blowing up because he was short mm. the stock. Yeah, and he controlled. That's just Rupert Murdoch. I mean, come on. We, we know all the stories about people doing stuff. And um, and then there's this one where where Pierce Brosnan is, is you know, on the little cart inside the pipeline mm. that the rebels are trying to blow up. Mm. Right. That's right what we're talking about mm. in, you know, Ukraine and, and all over Eastern Europe. So. Uh, I, have, I have another I have a beef with the with the James Bond, the recent James Bond movies. They make it too hard. They, like, make it too hard for you to understand the plot of the movie. Sometimes I'm oh, watching a James sure. Bond movie, and I'm like, why are we going here? Did you? And, you know, it's like one little line of dialogue, like, 20 minutes ago is the reason why we're in this, like, new country. It's like, okay, I get it. James Bond, it's like an excuse to go. But don't make me work this hard to just keep up with the basics of the plot, man. Like, I feel <laughs> like I'm watching a surreal piece of art half the time I'm watching a James Bond movie. like... Just tell me what yeah. we're doing. Let here. me relax. Let me yeah, relax let me and have fun. Yeah, come yeah. on. Let me let relax me here. Yeah. So I want to get your take on this because the SWIFT thing, I heard these politicians calling for uh, Russia being ejected from the SWIFT ecosystem. And it just, I had I had an emotional reaction to it and I was trying to figure out why. I, I think, overall, I think the US has probably abused their position as the issuer of the reserve currency in general. And you know, there are already these signs. I mean, Russia has made it a national security priority, right? To, we, they, they've made it known that they don't like being on this dollar system. China hates being on the mm -hmm. dollar system. But we're right. It feels like we're teetering on the precipice of abusing it too much, right? And I think a full-scale ejection of Russia from the SWIFT system, they would they'd build another one. I mean, th that, that, would. Would, that, that would be like... Of course. You know? Of so, course. So, and you know, it's funny because... When, when the, the Canada situation made me think, okay, so it's been international policy for a long time to freeze people out financially, freeze out countries, mm -hmm. sanctions. We don't like what you're doing. We're going to limit your ability to transact with the rest of the world as a punishment. That is now making its way into domestic policy as well. That's why I think the Canadian policy was so crazy. And Nick Carter's done a great job of pointing out Operation Choke Point. That's actually happened in the U.S. as well as early as 2013. I, you, you know, that... That's a problem. I, I, oh, come I, I, on. Look, this is, but this <laughs> all comes back to the Rothschilds, right? It comes back, you know, do people know why we call our currency the dollar? Do you know? I don't, no, I don't. We borrowed it from the Dutch. Theirs was called the dollar. Oh, really? Well, who controlled the Dutch? The Rothschilds, because they created the first central bank in 1648 uh, to finance war. Uh, and that's how the Netherlands, think about it, the Netherlands 
had the world reserve currency <laughs> for a period of time in history? The Netherlands? <laughs> How? Because they used fractional reserve banking that the Rothschilds fomented uh, along with the benevolent Medicis, probably. And they created a war machine and they took over France, who had taken over Spain, who had taken over Portugal. And then the UK eventually invented steam engines, so they had the more powerful navy, and they took over. And then they, shockingly, created a central bank and financed colonialism for uh, sun never set on the British Empire for almost 100 years. And then they invaded Mesopotamia, right in the middle of what we're talking about, right in the Middle East and the, and the, the energy-rich uh, cradle of civilization and incurred a bunch of debt. The pound sterling collapsed. The dollar ascended. We became the world reserve currency in Bretton Woods. And uh, then we coincidentally invaded Mesopotamia, incurred a bunch of debt. The dollar collapsed. The renminbi ascended. Oh, wait, that's happening in real time. So uh, look, the SWIFT system needs to go. Right? One of my favorite lines uh, I keep quoting recently, and I wish, again, I wish I could remember who, who said it. There's no tech in fintech. There's no tech in fintech. You're using old antiquated rails to do payments. And, and yes, you're taking functions out of banks and making the UI better. Okay, right, that, that's tech. But the actual rails are still the antiquated systems built on mainframes and, and all that stuff. And so Swift is, I don't know how many decades old. Um, but what we need is global digital currencies. Oh, wait, we have that. It's mm. called Bitcoin. Um, and there are other things around the Ethereum network, the, the DeFi networks, but that's all coming. And I said, do I, do I think tomorrow Russia would be very happy if they had their own little private network with China and Iran and Venezuela and, and a handful of others? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Here's something I'm noticing in general. So this this problem that we're both pointing out with being able to unilaterally freeze people out of the financial system, a lot of uh, people who have been critical of Bitcoin also identify that it's a problem. They want privacy in transactions. They disagree with government's ability to freeze people out of the financial system. But they're also very worried about what's going on with China and Russia and threats to U.S. hegemony, right, in, in the world. So basically, there's this idea that anything that weakens U.S. power, whether it be the dollar, right, Bitcoin's weakening on the dollar, whether it be like government power domestically, that anything that weakens U.S. power is bad because that limits our ability to contend with these other less benevolent powers in the world. And I actually understand that perspective, but I don't know, I can't tell where I come out on it yet. Uh, but I, I think that's an emerging point, right? Oh, I can't... It's I can't no, it's tell. Real. Yeah. It's real. Think about it. I mean, I I struggle with why do we believe we are the, the world's policemen? Mm -hmm. Right? Russia and Ukraine have a conflict. Okay, what's the conflict? You know, Putin says it's genocide. I, I don't know anything about genocide going on in Ukraine against Russian citizens, but if he says it, well, maybe he has a point. I, I just I don't I don't have any knowledge. Uh what do I really think it is? I, I really think it's because NATO wants to establish bases on Russia's border. That's probably pushing it too far. Um, you know, if, if Russia said, hey, you know what, I want to put some bases in Cuba. 
That's a really or, good idea. Yeah, or in Canada, in Canada or, or Canada, something like yeah. that, right? So I, it, it'd probably be yeah. a problem. But but to your point, I, I think we know that the kumbaya world where everybody just kind of does their own stuff and there are no police, that probably doesn't exist. I mean, think about the, the Wild West. It was called the Wild West for a reason. Yeah. I say, I, I like living today versus 150 years ago because 150 years ago, yeah, you could go to Oklahoma and you could stamp out this plot of land and say it's mine. And it was until someone with a bigger gun came and took it from you. Right. Because the posse wasn't going to get there fast enough to, to stop them. And so I, I kind of like living in rule of law. And I kind of like the fact that there are two slash three nuclear powers that just look at each other and say, nope, nope. Yeah. We're not. Like, look, Afghanistan does something wrong. No, I don't think they actually did anything wrong, but okay, let's... 9-11. So we blamed Iraq. It was actually probably more Saudi people, but, but whatever. But we blame somebody. We can go after them because they don't have nuclear power, you know, nuclear weapons. If Russia does something that we don't like, you know, you have, you have one senator. I heard one senator say, ah, oh, everything's on the table, including a nuclear strike. I'm like, what? What? Uh, okay, what? but but that but that's only we only have sixty years of history or whatever of human history with with, with access to nuclear weapons. I, I knock know. on wood. It's been actually there's a really oh my god one of my favorite but also most terrifying stories of human history in general is you know that story of like when during the Cold War the Russian early alert system went off. It was a malfunction. Yeah. But Russia thought we launched nukes. Yes. And the order came down to counter strike. From Russian High Command, send nukes at the U.S. The guy who had to push the button said no. I forget. I'm blanking on his name right ah, now. That's unbelievable. It's the most unbelievable. It's the single most unbelievable story I think in probably all of human history. That guy's had more of an impact on the human race than probably anyone else. Uh, uh, look, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and, and think about that risk, right? Mm -hmm. Think about how close we could be, and whether it's a malfunction. Or whether it's a hack. I mean, I tweeted out this thing yesterday, the, you know, welcome to unreality TV of you see the little kid and it looks like he's teetering on the edge over this, this waterfall. And then they show you that it's a kid walking on flat ground and they edit the left-hand side and put in a waterfall. And like, oh my God, you can't trust anything you see. So all these videos that people are posting, maybe mm -hmm. they're true. Some of them definitely are true. I'm not, I'm not saying that people, but, but we don't know that everything we see is true. So what if a hacker finds a way in? And that's one thing about, um, I do, I talk about this a lot when people say, aren't you worried about uh, quantum computing? Like, not even a little with respect to Bitcoin. Uh, because I, do you know Eric Schmidt from Google? Oh, yeah. You should listen to this Tim Ferriss interview that he did. Do you yeah. want to know the time timeline that he gave for quantum computing to get here? Yes. I, I think Eric's a really smart guy. Eight years. That blew my mind. All right. Yeah. So you, you got it. You got to listen to this interview. It was. I will. I know. I definitely will. I'll link it in the show notes, everyone. This, this was a crazy one. I, I will take the over on that. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I, I, you know, eight years is actually a long time. In I could be wrong. Could have been fifteen. I, no, but eight, eight, eight it doesn't matter. Eight, right. it doesn't, I, I'll, I'll, but, but here's the thing. Even if quantum existed, the first target is not going to be Bitcoin. It's just not. It's also it's like going to be the nuclear launch pad, right? Because that control of that system mm -hmm. is worth way more than the market cap of Bitcoin. Like, yeah. like not, I mean, orders of magnitude more. I have, I have one thought that I want to, I have a theory that I want to leave you with here just because crypto show. Um, I, I think Bitcoin is on the cusp of getting a new narrative. So Bitcoin as, as a whole, right? We, we always have these narratives um, around Bitcoin, but Bitcoin at the end of the day is just a hard, uncensorable asset. It's something that you want to own in good times and bad times, whatever. You, you don't need a narrative to own Bitcoin, but we're humans and we process things in terms of stories. So Bitcoin always has a prevailing narrative. I think I think Bitcoin's narrative tends to gravitate towards where abuse of institutional power is greatest. So in 2020, right, the abuse of institutional power that was greatest and most salient was central banking. Trillions of dollars printed. That's how we got the money printer go burr mm -hmm. meme. Then every, everyone was buying it, quote unquote, because money printer go burr. People were buying it because mm -hmm. it's a good asset to own. But that's the narrative that we that we yeah. had around it, right? Yeah. So now what's going to happen? So inflation is is going is going up. Central banks will make a big show of fighting inflation. They might try to raise rates, whatever they're going to do. But I don't think anymore it's going to be the money printer go burr meme. I think that's done for a while. Instead, what I think is going to happen, the reason I've been calling attention to Canada, is I think the meme or the narrative that Bitcoin's about to get is censorship resistance yeah. in general. And what I think you're seeing censorship in two different planes right now. Financial censorship, right? What's going on with Canada and banks and freezing out protesters, et cetera. And it's deplatforming off social media. And yep. every single time a system is abused, be it SWIFT, domestic banking, social media, whatever, you're deplatforming people. For every one person you deplatform, three people see that and think, I don't like that. I, I don't like what you're doing. Uh, I, I don't think that that should be the case. And what you do, and then, so what you're doing is you're creating this community of people who are looking at this and thinking that's wrong. Eventually, the biggest community of people that think that that's wrong. Is, is Bitcoin. And I think what's going to happen is politicians, businesses, what they're all going to do is they're going to realize, all right, I'm going to have to come out on one side or the other of censorship. It's happening mm -hmm. with Spotify right now and Joe Rogan, right? So they're having to be like, they're going to make, Spotify's a business, so they're going to make a business decision. They're going to mm -hmm. be like, I paid all this money for Joe Rogan. I've got a consumer base that's going to like if I deplatform him. And I've got a consumer base that's going to like that I didn't deplatform him. They're going to sit down and figure out which one is going to make them more money. If they, if they go the route of keeping Joe Rogan on, what they're going to do is they're going to need a way to make up for the lost revenue from the other part of their customer base that's leaving. What are the, mm -hmm. the easiest way to make that up is to start accepting Bitcoin payments because yeah. they're like, here's this big community of people, right? That, uh, yeah. that they're going to like this. It's going to be a huge booster. Why is Ted Cruz going so hard on Bitcoin right now? Do I think it's because he has been enlightened to the power of decentralization? No, it's because miners are coming to Texas and it's going to get him that much more of the incremental vote if he can bring economic activity. And it aligns 100%. from an ideological... So yeah. this, so tying this all back, I think the, the new narrative that Bitcoin is going to get is this like freedom flag censorship resistant type thing because that's the vector of institutional overreach that I think the world is going to be dealing with oh, over no, the next look, two to three years. It, 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 it's... And I should actually research this, uh, whether the term Nazi 
originated with Germany and and the whole Hitler movement, or whether it even goes back further. I, I don't know the answer. I, but, but, you know, Seinfeld, famous character, the soup Nazi. No soup for you. No soup for you. Okay. No soup for you. That, that's where we are. No Swift for you. No Spotify for you. No protesty for you. It's... <laughs> It's that's not funny, but you, no protesting for you made me. Yeah, cry. yeah. No, but but I mean, you no, know, we don't like it. No, no, and and that's a Nazi thing. That is literally a we make the rules. We determine what's right, what's good, what's pure. Ooh, hate that word. What's pure, and if you are impure or you are against purity or you're against us then you are gone. And that uh, uncensorable, I'm not even sure that's a word, I think it's a word, uncensorable, um, you know, we have permissionless and that whole thing, but uncensorable, and I think you guys have been playing on this a little bit at Blockworks, which I applaud, um, that uncensorable, I agree with you, is the mantra. And it, oh, go ahead. There's like a political, there's a base of, so Bitcoin has this really valuable community with this set of shared values. And there's an irony that I've always thought in crypto, which is an, an attempt to abstract away human nature. But at the end of the day, one of the things that makes crypto and Bitcoin so valuable is this group of people underneath the technology. And yeah. I think this is, I think what we're going to see over the course of the next couple of years is politicians and business leaders waking up to the fact that there is this community of people that they can tap into by yeah. appealing to their shared set of values. Think of the crazy irony though, that you just exposed. Mm. I mean, because it's, it's great insight and, 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 a, good, and a good thesis uh, that will play out. But think about the irony of this. What makes politicians powerful is the ability to censor, to have that Nazi we make the rules and if we don't like what you do we can make the rules harm you that's what makes governments powerful mm -hmm. and they're backed by standing armies the old physical armies now it's going to be digital armies and i've been talking about this for years that the reason china is so far ahead is they figured out first and others are catching up that the next war is going to be fought with chips, not ships. Mm. Like, what, what was the whole talk about in the last 24 hours? The response to Russia isn't going to be, oh, we send a bunch of, of young boys and girls from, from the United States. Cyber attack. Mm. A coordinated cyber attack. Chips, not ships. And that is really interesting if you embrace something that declaws or defangs to bring in the fang story here but but defangs the ability to control and censor i i think that's very interesting and then i don't know how you you, you get the light switch to go but you could in a world where borders start to erode and communities start to form around these 
technological solutions like like Bitcoin and, and others, you could have a harmonious oasis. The problem is, I think, you're going to end up with multiple oases and then you're going to get conflict. Because someone said, and I, I can't remember who, again, I can't remember who this was, but they said there's a genetic flaw. So flaw is probably a, a, a clickbait word. But they said there's a genetic marker in humans that is responsible for our predilection to conflict. Mm. Like, huh, it's really kind of interesting. And, and I, I think that's probably right. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's baked in there at some point. But uh, I know we've got to wrap it here. Mark, this has been a ton of fun, as per usual. Um, always, always. Yeah. Thanks thanks for, for putting it together. Thanks for leading the way. And uh, uh, we will see you again in a week. You bet, my friend. I will see you here same time next week. Cheers. Right. Have a good one.